We're wrapping up the series we've been in now for several weeks, One Another's, as we've looked at specific commands that are undeniable and are universal for all of the church to obey, to apply, things we are to do to one another in our interactions with one another, in our relationships, and in the church as a whole. We've looked at a couple things we're commanded not to do, that we're supposed to be on guard against to make sure that we don't do to one another. And as we wrap up, we come down to the end of this particular area of focus. We're going to talk today about the command to live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. And like all the other one another's we've looked at, this certainly does not come easy. It does not come naturally. It's difficult. It's challenging. It's counterintuitive to our human nature. But nonetheless, it is commanded, and it is important, and when done, it results in something truly beautiful and unparalleled. Harmony, that concept, the desire for it, the attempt to have it, is not unique to the church. Harmony is something that all of the world and culture tries to create, tries to foster, but most of the time... It's the kind of harmony that runs contrary to the kind of harmony that God calls the church to have. Think of the LGBTQ agenda. It's all about harmony, right? All about coming together, uh, no judgment, no barrier, no difference. Everybody just completely accepting all that goes along with that. Or... On a religious-type concept, the coexist philosophy, it's been around for a long time. You've seen the coexist bumper stickers or banners, uh, that philosophy that everybody should just come together and forget any sort of differences, and, and let's just all be on the same page no matter what we believe. Both of those examples, the LGBTQ agenda, the coexist philosophy, uh, it's, just, it's just not going to work. Because you're going to have to compromise truth, you're going to have to compromise the standard of God's Word in order to have the kind of harmony that they are wanting to have. That runs contrary to God's Word, and that's not the type of harmony that we're called to pursue. It's not harmony at the expense of truth or standards or holiness or righteousness. That's not the kind of harmony that we're supposed to be pursuing. The harmony we're supposed to be pursuing is found, among other places, in Romans 15, 5 through 6, and that's the area of focus that I want to present to you today. Romans 15, 5 through 6. Certainly, the challenge and the command and the admonition to be one and to be in harmony with one another is found over and over and over in the pages of Scripture. Romans chapter 12 talks a lot about it, but I want us to look at this particular portion of Scripture, so look at this with me, Romans 15, 5 through 6, God's Word to us. The Apostle Paul writes, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice some things with me about this passage. First, in verse 5, I want you to see that it's 
the God who is himself a God of endurance and a God of encouragement that grants us, that gives us the ability, the power, the desire, and the follow-through to do what we are supposed to do, to live in harmony with one another. Aren't you glad that God is a God of endurance, that you don't have to come up with endurance yourself? Because no matter what you may be like, no matter how strong you might be, no matter how able to endure you might be in and of yourself, there's going to be a time in your life at some point, there's going to be enough coming your way when you just don't have the endurance to do what you're supposed to do, to be what you're supposed to be. And so we should draw tremendous comfort from the fact that God is a God of endurance. Secondly, you see that he is also a God of encouragement. What a God of encouragement he is. How many times have you faced crisis and uncertainty in your life, tragic circumstances, trauma, and no matter where you look, you just can't find the encouragement that you need? God is a God of unlimited encouragement. He is the source of encouragement, and we can draw encouragement from him. And so it's this God, the God of endurance, the God of encouragement that grants us, that enables and empowers us to do what he is commanding to do. That, my friends, is the God we have. It's a God that that doesn't just give us a command, doesn't just give us a mandate, doesn't just give us some sort of standard and then just leave us on our own to go and do it. He gives us the ability to do what he commands. Aren't you thankful for that? That when he says, do this, be this, don't do this, don't be like this, he doesn't just say it and then it's just empty. He gives us the power, the ability, the follow-through that we need to do that. So God, the God of endurance and encouragement, grants us the ability to live in such harmony with one another that in accord with Christ Jesus, together we may with one lifted, raised voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What that tells us, what that shows us is that God is glorified when the church, us, you and me, when the church is unified. God is glorified when the church is unified. And God's glory should be the goal of our unity. There's a lot of advantages, a lot of benefits for a church that is unified, certainly. But the number one advantage, the number one benefit, the number one goal of our unity should be God's glory. And friends, he is most glorified when we are the most unified that we can be. When we are together, when we are harmonious That's when he gets glory the most. He gets glory from a lot of things, sure. There's a lot of things that we do and can do in the church that brings him glory. But none so much as this. As a church that is living in harmony together. A church that is unified. That's what brings God the most glory. And something else about that. What unites the church, what at its core, unites us, is bigger than what might divide us. And there are a lot of things that that definitely unite us. A lot of things. And what definitely unites us, what absolutely, without any question, unites us, 
is bigger, stronger, wider, deeper than all the things that might possibly divide us. We come from a lot of different backgrounds. You and me, we, we together, all of us come from different ways of looking at things. We have different points of view. We have different perspectives. We have different preferences. And most of the time, you take any collection of people and you're going to find all sorts of things that they are different in. All sorts of things that could potentially divide us. If we were to take a poll on every single issue, all of us here together today, I guarantee you we would find lots of things that we would find we look at in different ways. Lots of things that we could, if we allowed ourselves, disagree on. A lot of things that would be possibly sources of division. There's lots of things out there. And we could spend a lot of time looking at those. And unfortunately, that's the problem. That's exactly what we do. We spend a lot of time zeroing in on the things that might potentially divide us rather than focusing on all of the things that absolutely unite us. Please understand and remember that what unites us fundamentally as a body, as a church, is bigger and stronger and more precious than any of the things that could potentially divide us. Here's an example of that. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. The Apostle Paul writing here. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. That's another way of saying putting up with one another. There's another one another for free that you have there. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. See, this this unity that we're called to, it doesn't just come from inside of us. Naturally, it does come from inside of us, but it comes through and by the Spirit of God that is inside of us. The unity we're supposed to pursue as believers is found above us and beyond us. It's found in God, and God the Holy Spirit maintains it in us as we cooperate with Him and participate with Him and yield to Him. So, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, not of you and me, of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. And then he gives examples of this oneness that is to define us, this unity that is bigger than any disunity that we might find. Verse 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Isn't that a beautiful passage of Scripture? That's what should define us, church. That is what is true of us, even when we don't feel it. Those are the things that don't go away. The one body of Christ, 
the one Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, one hope that we were called to that belongs to our call, one Lord, one Sovereign over all of us and over all that we do, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. See, what unites the church is much bigger than what might divide us. An example of this, a very real practical example that we see week in and week out is what happens right up here before I get up here. It's what happens with our musicians and our singers every week. What I mean is this. When it comes to music, you don't get harmony in music by everyone just playing the exact same note. That's not harmony. Harmony happens when different notes are played together so that one note complements and enriches another. And it's difficult to do because musicians and singers, they have to make sure that they are totally in tune and in time with one another. Note changes have to take place at exactly the right time and exactly the right way. And it's complex and it's challenging, but when it happens, it's beautiful and it's a memorable thing. And much like music, much like music, harmony in the body of Christ does not mean everyone thinks the same and does the same or is the same. So what I said earlier about the varying opinions and perspectives and all of that, it doesn't mean that we have to always, always look at everything the same way. We have to think exactly the same thoughts and do things exactly the same way. I wasn't trying to suggest that we do. What I mean is that we don't let those differences become what we are focused on. We don't let the differences divide. Differences are okay as long as they don't divide us. So harmony in the body, much like music, does not mean that that we have to always just think the same thoughts, do everything the exact same way, or that we are all the same. It does mean, it does mean that each individual has to decide to be selfless for the sake of the whole and for the sake of the common goal. And what is the common goal? God's glory through our unity. You see that? God's glory, remember that's our goal, and He is most glorified when we are unified. So what it means is that me as an individual, you as an individual, we come together and that we decide intentionally, as hard as it is, to be selfless for the sake of the whole body and for the sake of the one goal, which is God's glory. That's what this means. And too often we just go off and we do our own thing, right? We go off, we do our own thing, we live our own way. Too often we build our own little personal kingdoms rather than working together for the sake of the kingdom, rather than building the one kingdom we're supposed to all be building. We're often focused on building our own little version of that. And what we're called to do is to pursue the one kingdom. And it's hard to do and it goes against our natures. But just like a beautiful song that is hard to pull together with all those harmonies, when it happens, when the church is truly harmonious, truly unified, wow, the results are amazing. 
and the body is beautiful, and the possibilities are endless. Just like I said last week in our very uh, unorthodox service, as we were without power, President Harry Truman said that it is amazing what can be accomplished when nobody cares who gets the credit. And that certainly is true with the body of Christ. What we can accomplish, church, when we are in harmony together, when we are unified. And that leads me to this next truth that I want to make sure you you hear, you think about, you internalize, you apply. When an unbelieving world, when an unbelieving world sees a unified church, they might actually listen to our words. Because actions, after all, do speak louder than words, right? Always. Every aspect of life, that's true. And that is certainly true of the body of Christ. That's certainly true of the church. We can talk about unity all day long. We can sing about it. We can claim and profess to all be one and to be full of love and to be full of humility and full of respect for one another. We can talk about the one hope we have and get really, really happy about all that. But at the end of the day, what makes the difference is that we live it. And we live it out there. And that's where it shows what is really true of us, out there. That's where it really counts. That's where an unbelieving world sees what is really true of us and what is not true of us. So when an unbelieving world actually sees it in action, that we are a unified church, I'm not saying it's a guarantee that they will listen to our words, but I will say that it makes it a lot more likely that they will listen to our words when they see the difference that is present and active and obvious in our lives. When they see that we're more than just talk. When they see that despite all of our differences, we are together in all the areas that count and matter. They're going to take notice. They're going to sit up. They're going to stand up. They're going to see that there's something different And they're going to want to know what that is, what makes that true of us. Because there is just not unity out there in the world. I said at the beginning that they want it, they look for it, they try to manufacture it, but it's not there. Our world is in chaos. Our world is in constant disunity. Our world is in constant hostility with one another. There's not unity present in the world, right? So if they see unity here in us, if they see unity in the body of Christ, it's going to stand out. It's going to be a contrast to their everyday life. Especially because we're not the same. Especially because we still have different opinions, different perspectives, different preferences, and different ways of being. And so when the unity that is ours through Christ, when the bond of the Spirit is on display and it triumphs over all of those differences, that's something that's special. That's something supernatural. And that's something that doesn't come from us. That's what the unbelieving world needs to see in us and about us. This is not just something that was The Apostle Paul's desire, this is not something that's just my desire for us. 
This is something that is our Savior's desire. This is something that is very much on his heart and on his mind and always has been. So much so that before he went to the cross to give his life for the church, he made sure that one of the last things he said before going to his death was a prayer for unity, a prayer for harmony. John chapter 17 records what is truly the Lord's prayer. And the whole passage, the whole prayer is just absolutely incredible. But I want to zero in on verses 20 through 23. John 17, 20 through 23. Where our Savior, listen to our Savior and what was on His heart, what was on His mind, what was important, of paramount importance to Him right before He went to the cross. John 17, 20. Now, right before this, he had asked the Father for unity, for oneness, for his immediate and original disciples, those that were right there around him, Peter, James, John, Andrew, those. He prayed for their unity. Then he says this, this is astounding. Don't miss this. Don't get over this. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Isn't that incredible? Astounding? That means Jesus didn't just pray for his immediate disciples. He was praying for every person in every age from the disciples on all through time everyone that would come to him and become his disciple through the gospel message that the original disciples would go out and spread and share and promote. The Great Commission happened after Jesus rose from the dead before he ascended to the Father. Go into all the world, right? Preach the gospel to every creature baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Well, that's what they did. Took them a little while, but they did. They went out to all the world. And the gospel started being proclaimed. And it started being believed. And it started being spread. So that in every age, every generation, there were followers of Christ raised up in those generations. And every generation from this one, from the first century on, the Lord God in His sovereignty and in the work of His Spirit and through His people has raised up a remnant in every age that is the church of Jesus Christ. And that includes you and me. So we can trace it all the way back to this occurrence and this prayer from our Lord and Savior where ultimately... He was praying for you, and he was praying for me. Ultimately, it's not an exaggeration to say that he was praying for Faith Baptist Church, that we would be unified just like his original disciples would be unified. Wow. That's a mic drop moment, isn't it? That's what we're called to. Let's keep reading. So he didn't just ask for unity for his immediate disciples there around him. He asked for all who would believe in him through their word, all through the ages. And this is what 
his prayer is. Verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, there it is. An unbelieving world needs to see a unified church. And when they see a unified church, they might actually listen to our words. To the gospel we say, we believe. To the gospel we say has changed our lives. Maybe, just maybe, they'll sit up and take notice if they see a unity in action. That's certainly what Jesus wanted to see happen. That's what he's praying for. That they, us, we, we as, as followers of Christ may be just as unified as Jesus and the Father are, that we may also be in them. Why? So that the world may believe that God the Father sent God the Son. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. What's the purpose of that? Why did he do that? Why did he take his glory and give it to us, his followers, to the church? Look, that they may be one even as we are one. I said at the very beginning that God is most glorified when we are unified. That God's glory should be the goal of our unity. He said it right there in his prayer. Jesus is saying that. The glory you've given me, I've given to them so that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly or completely one. So that, here it is again, you think this is important to Jesus? That he keeps repeating this over and over? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I think we can get a pretty clear picture of what was a priority for Jesus and what he wanted the priority to be for us, his church. And if it was this important to Jesus that before he went to the cross, he made sure he expressed that to the Father, prayed that from the Father for all of his followers, if that was on his mind and his heart along with everything else that was, then that should be on our minds and on our hearts and a big, big number one priority for us as well. This harmony should be active in every aspect of the church. It should define and drive all our ministries and all of our activities. So everything we do, everything we're about, should come back to this harmony, this unity that we're commanded to have, that Jesus himself prayed for and then went to the cross to purchase for us. And what that should look like, and what that should include, is everything we've talked about throughout this whole series. So we've really come full circle. We're coming full circle now in this series. The harmony that we're commanded to have, that we're looking at today, the unity that is to define the church of Jesus, that brings God glory. It encompasses every aspect of the one another commands we've talked about. So, 
We started off in the series talking about loving one another. Loving one another. And it wasn't loving one another in any just random way. The command is to love one another as Jesus loves us. And how did he love us? What was the measure of his love? It's right up here. It's our focal point every single week and hopefully every single day of our lives. It's the cross. That's the extent of Christ's love. That he was willing to go to the cross for us. Love one another as I have loved you, Jesus commands. That's what will make a difference in the world. That's what will make a difference in our relationships. That's what will make a difference in the church. Then, equally as hard as that, we are commanded to forgive one another. And again, the standard is not one another. We're to forgive one another, but not according to the measure of one another's forgiveness. We're to forgive one another, Ephesians 4.32, as God, through Christ, has forgiven us. A forgiveness that we could never deserve or be worthy of or earn, we were given freely because Jesus paid for it with his life. That's the measure of our forgiveness. It doesn't mean when we feel like forgiving. It doesn't mean when someone is deserving of our forgiveness. It doesn't mean if we are forgiven by them. We don't get to decide who to forgive and who not to forgive. We don't get to decide what we are going to forgive. We are commanded to forgive as God through Christ forgave us. Then, moving on from there, we looked at two don't commands. Don't provoke or envy one another. Don't be full of arrogance and conceit that then causes stirring up envy and jealousy and wrath and division with one another. Don't provoke or envy one another. Then moving on from there, we talked about the command that we are not to criticize one another. Don't criticize or speak evil against one another. And then last week, we talked about a very, very important command to consider one another higher than yourself. Consider one another higher than yourself. Look out for the interests of others, not just only for your own interests in life. And then last, but certainly not least, what we've talked about today, and this is truly what ties it all together. I hope you see that. Speaking of harmony, I hope you see the harmony of all of this. As we do all of those things, as we love one another and and forgive one another, which is a result of love. If we love one another, we're going to forgive one another. And that's going to then lead to not provoking, not envying one another, not criticizing or speaking evil or gossiping against one another. All of that leads to the fact that we are considering one another as higher than ourselves. And in all of that together, we're living in harmony and in unity with one another. You see how all that works? You see that it is very much a harmonious way of living? And all of this together, and each of these individually, church, it's impossible for you and me to do on our own. It's impossible. It doesn't matter how much we might agree with this. It doesn't matter how much we may want to live like that. We are going to have to depend, every one of us, we're going to have to depend 
on a power that is greater than us that comes from the Spirit of God within us. It's resigning to Him, yielding to Him, surrendering to Him, and then allowing Him to work and bring that out in our lives. That's what we need to do. Will you resolve to do that today? Will you resolve like never before to yield to the Spirit of God in each of these areas? I hope you will. If you do, if I do, if we do this all together, then oh, oh, what a beautiful, striking church we will be. And then, maybe then, an unbelieving world will actually listen to what we have to say. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power of it, the relevance of it. And I thank you for the spirit you've given us to apply what your word calls us to do. Thank you for not just giving us a command without the power and enablement to do it. Thank you for giving us all that we need to do all that you have called us to do. Thank you, God. Now help us, please, to yield to, to surrender to, to depend on the power of your Spirit to apply and live out what we have heard, what we've been commanded to do. Thank you for giving us all that we need. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.